But you've got it wrong, Doc. It's not about listening with your ears. It's about listening with your imagination. For countless centuries, the people of the world knew China only through her paintings. The correct answer is C. In the truest sense of the word, this fish is an angler. I wonder if the band is ready now. Yo, Frog! We are ready! W Radio Your Information Station Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World Information Station. This is show number 52 for the week of February 3rd, 2008. I'm your host, Lou Mangello, and I want to thank you for tuning in once again this week. I'm going to start off this week over in the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill, where we're going to talk about some recent permits filed by Disney about the Imagination Pavilion and a survey about guest experiences at Walt Disney World with some very interesting questions. In honor of the upcoming Chinese New Year, Jeff and I are going to do another DSI, Disney Scene Investigation, and this week we explore the beauty mystery, and symbolism of the China Pavilion in Epcot's World Showcase. I'll answer more of your emails, and stay tuned for the end of the show where I play a number of your voicemails. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Our visit to the Walt Disney World rumor mill this week starts off with a rumor that was sent in by listener who Beth, who said that over at Disney's Beach Club, they are supposedly going to be putting in a 24-hour grab-and-go food and beverage shop that's going to have prepackaged items for sale all hours of the day and night. This should be completed by June, according to the cast member she spoke with, and is going to be next to or currently at where Ariel's currently sits. Now, many guests, such as her and myself included, have requested that some type of place be open after the parks is closed because there's not really very many places to get some snacks very late at night. Uh, some people that like to check in late or come back from the parks late like to get something to eat or drink or when they come in from Disney's Magical Express, they don't get really a chance to stop. So this is going to be another 24-hour location where guests over at the beach club can get something um, late into the night. Permits last week filed by Walt Disney World indicate what's going to be what is being called the quote unquote imagination demolition. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the filing that references such uh, such a term being used. But don't get your hopes up or be too upset because it does not call for the demolition of the whole building. Instead, the likelihood is that the demolition is possibly of some areas upstairs or backstage areas, preparing either to adding to the image works upstairs. We'll have to keep a close eye on this one, but again, this is not something that I think is going to be really done on some sort of a wholesale basis at the pavilion. The Cars Meet and Greet over at Disney's Hollywood Studios is undergoing a name and location change and supposedly will now be changed from Cars Go Cruising to the Stars of Cars and is now going to be found between the Coca-Cola Cool Station and the construction walls for Pixar Place, which is located near the entrance to the Backlot Tour. The current meet, meet and greet times are 10, 10.55, 11.50, 1.30, 4, and 5 o'clock, 
and it's expected that the location will eventually be moved to per- a permanent location on Pixar Place once the construction walls for Toy Story Mania come down. A listener emailed me about a survey that they were uh, asked to take by a third-party online survey company that was about Walt Disney World, although I I need to be clear, there was no indication directly uh, from the listener that this uh, survey was given by Disney itself. But some of the questions were interesting, and I wanted to include them here. For example, the questions were included about the reasons and frequency of a guest's visit, as well as their general likes and dislikes. But some of the other specific questions included things like, would they be interested in an exclusive after-hours experience at the Walt Disney World theme parks for an added cost? Basically, this would give guests uh, guaranteed extra hours at the parks with with limited number of guests gaining admittance for an extra price. They also wanted to gauge their opinion about guaranteed discount prices for round-trip flights when you book your Walt Disney World vacation six months in advance. Other questions included things about 50% off Walt Disney World theme park tickets during select time of year, uh, obviously non-holiday, non-school vacation periods, and things like, what would you think about VIP treatment available at an extra cost? Things that would include front-of-the-line access at rides, personal concierge, private poolside cabanas, complimentary snacks and drinks in an air-conditioned suite at some of the theme parks, etc. Other questions included things about the free dining plan option and things as part of the VIP experience about a guaranteed maximum 20-minute wait time on up to five pre-selected rides or attractions for each day you spend in each of the Walt Disney World theme parks. That's very interesting. Also goes back to some of the discussions we've had in the past about FastPass. Other questions and comments talked about lines for the uh, attractions being transformed into, quote, unique entertainment experiences using state-of-the-art technology and Disney magic. Again, when I read this, the first thing that came to mind was Soren, maybe gauging people's interest uh, in, in using those kind of technologies to make these cues a little bit more interactive and fun. It also talked about kids' programming, things like art, crafts, etc., at your Walt Disney World Resort Hotel, to give parents and adults time to themselves. Uh, Obviously, these kind of services would also be available at an extra hourly fee. And up to four hours per day of free babysitting service for Walt Disney World hotel guests. Again, this isn't saying that this is something that they're looking to definitely offer, but things that they did want to gauge guest reaction and interest in. Uh, If anybody else has had a chance to take this survey or has taken a survey of anything similar, by all means, please write in or call into the show. Let me know. I'm curious to see how far reaching this may be and how how close Disney might be to actually putting some of these tests in play to see uh, actual guest reaction and interest. Finally, in this week's Walt Disney World rumor mill, some rumored and yet very unofficial times and dates for opening over at Disney's Hollywood Studios are starting to come out. We're looking to see uh, for a time period between maybe March 20th and April 1st, 2008 for Pixar Place to open. And I would look for soft openings for Toy Story Mania probably to begin somewhere about mid-April to the beginning of May. It's expected that the official opening of Toy Story Mania and Pixar Place should take place probably in the middle of June. That'll take place both over at Walt Disney World and Disneyland. And I'd also probably look for uh, on-ride photos to be available, as well as a new Pixar Studio store to be located at the exit of the attraction. 
So, as always, if you guys have any rumors that you want to share, anything you want to discuss, send them to me via email at lou at wdwradio.com or call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. In honor of the upcoming Chinese New Year, coincidentally the year of the rat, uh, I thought it would be an appropriate time to take a detailed look at one of World Showcase's most beautiful and symbolic pavilions, and that is, of course, China. It was an opening day pavilion back in 1982. It's steeped in imagery, spiritual significance, and storytelling of a people that date back thousands of years. So I wanted to welcome back Jeff Pepper from 2719 to take this very detailed scene and investigation and look at China. Jeff, welcome back, buddy. Hey, Lou. May good fortune follow you on your path through life, and may virtue be your neighbor. Uh, live long and prosper. So, Jeff, as always, we're going we're gonna to get a really good look at the pavilion, the exterior, the interior, what it has to offer by way of attractions and dining and other entertainment uh, because I really do think this is one of the best uses of the space for a pavilion in Epcot. And I, and I really like the pavilion, too, specifically because China is one of those places, maybe more so than Mexico or even someplace like France or Germany, that most of us in the United States probably are never going to get a chance to see or experience. Yeah, it's it's a great place, and it similar to Japan... It, it kind of what you just said, it appeals to that sort of exotic kind of nature and something that you've, you've never been exposed to, but you, you are immediately immersed in when you're there. Absolutely. And that and you hit on the key word there, which was immersion. And that's exactly what this pavilion does. And, and through the use of symbolism that we're going to cover, um, because the architecture and the layout and everything you see from the exterior interior is very, very important. And as you enter the pavilion, you pass through this gate of the Golden Sun called Zhao Yang Men, and you see in the distance the structure which is modeled after the Temple of Heaven in Peking. That's really the focal point of this entire pavilion. Uh, this gate was modeled after one at the Emperor's Summer Palace in Beijing. You'll also see the Forbidden City, uh, an imperial palace, sort of on the opposite end of the pavilion, much like they are both on the opposite ends of the city. Uh, but you really, as you pass through this gate, it's supposed to be the beginning uh, of a journey. And you're really supposed to be transformed mentally and spiritually as you prepare to make your way and on your journey into China. Um, and the first thing you're supposed to do is take a look at and contemplate the three 15-foot-tall rocks that are located by the entrance. Uh, you're supposed to stand there and contemplate the rock and the shape and the textures and, and how those rocks contribute to one's serenity with nature. And, you know, that may sound like I'm kind of making it up or something that, that's made up, but believe it or not, this is something that ancient rulers would spend fortunes to actually create for these temples. They would uh, send hundreds of men on expositions that could last years to bring back these perfectly formed stones uh, that they can put into uh, their Paris, palace gardens. And what you're saying is very important because, as we will, as we will talk about, the China Pavilion it really ties together all around. Um, it is one of the pavilions 
in-world showcase that has an attraction. It has the uh, the movie, and every element of the exterior ties in very, very directly with what you end up ultimately seeing as a part of the movie track uh, attraction. Absolutely, and again, too, the next part of what you see along your way in the journey is the Lotus Pool, and that's supposed to be another way to sort of induce you into this very serene, peaceful state of being. Um, you are meant to, you know, stop and look at the water lilies and look at the waterfalls and cross this bridge uh, over the pool as a literal transition before you get into um, the temple. But before you do, you know, we talk about the pool, this might be a good point to stop and talk about some of the exterior horticultural elements and some of the gardening and landscape because it's very, very important in Chinese culture. Now, um, much like in Japan where the symbolism is strong, uh, the Chinese gardens are different in that they're supposed to be very quiet and very still and very passive, like the meditation pools as opposed to the flowing movement and the waterfalls that we examined over in Japan. Um, They use plants very sparingly. Um, What they do try and do is bring in ones that are very unique, have very unique colors. Um, There's lots of different fruit trees that you'll find as part of the landscape. There's actually a weeping mulberry, which is Indicative of something that you'd find over in China, but believe it or not, it came from New Jersey, (laughs) of all places. Um, But it fit into the landscape um, perfectly. And as you start to kind of transition into the structure, as as you transition into this temple, which is half the size of the original temple that is in China, there's some very important things to take note of in there. And the first is that there's no display inside this temple. It's supposed to be very peaceful. It's supposed to be uh, have really no distractions for you to, to look at other than the elements of the temple itself, the symbolism that is brought in through the use of colors and other imagery inside the temple itself. And in true Disney fashion, uh, the Disney Imagineers paid such close attention to detail. Um, they spent thousands of hours kind of recreating these detailed patterns onto each and every tile into the Epcot Pavilion that they would have seen in the original Temple of Heaven. If you look very closely in the interior architecture, you can see that it's based on an agricultural theme. So, for example, there's four columns in the center that represent the four seasons of the year. There's 12 columns in the exterior that represent the 12 calendar months and the 12-year cycle, uh, life cycle, that the Chinese live by. Uh, You'll see things like the color red, which is very much prevalent in the pavilion, that represents happiness, where gold represents the royal family, represents the emperor and the empress. Um, the top, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, as I say, tying into what you were saying with the agricultural theme, the, the Temple of Heaven um, area in, in actual China is, is a kind of a complex of, of buildings and such, and the Temple of Heaven is, is the centerpiece. Um, but the um, the design in this area is actually based on a hall of prayer for good harvest, um, which, again, what you said, that's where the agricultural theme comes from. Right, and this this actually was and is a hall where uh, the emperor would go and either pray for a good harvest or give thanks for a good harvest that may have just passed. Um, so it really is a, a, a house of prayer. And when you get inside, um, take a note, too, of the acoustical elements and how just the acoustics are really perfect inside this. And look up at the top. You'll see at the top of the dome inside, 
there is a dragon medallion there, a beautiful gold dragon medallion. That represents power. That that dragon figure represents power. And actually, if you see a dragon with five claws, it represents the power of the emperor. And there's also an image of a phoenix there that you'll also find throughout the pavilion, which represents uh, both peace and prosperity. The other thing, Jeff, to notice inside, and you'll find this throughout the pavilion as well, are the use of um, geometric imagery. So, for example, you'll find circles, and those define the heavens, and the squares that you'll find represent the earth. And this is just a, a really a small representative sample of so much of the symbolism. Um, here, probably more so than any other pavilion, except maybe Japan, that you'll find uh, throughout the pavilion. There's actually one other thing, too, you should notice. If you look outside uh, atop the roof of the Nine Dragons restaurant, you'll find um, at the end of some of the arches and beams, you'll find the head of a dragon. You'll also find these small figures that are located up on top. I'll try and put a picture in the show notes if I can. Otherwise, I'll try and see if I can find one online to make reference to. But you'll find these figures, including, like I said, one of a dragon. You're also going to find a man who's sitting on a hen. And that man is actually represented, supposed to represent uh, uh, somebody by the name of Prince Min, who was a third century dictator who was hanged for his cruelty. And what they did, and this is customary in China, is they installed these these symbols almost in effigy of him as a warning to other tyrants. And they put other animals there to prevent him from escaping. So he stays there forever for other people to see. So, uh, again, just some of the things you're going to find out. Um, as you see and take notice. And obviously, a great place to, to talk to cast members. And, and if you have questions about some of the symbolism, they'll be able to explain it for you. Wow. See that? Learn something I'm new. Impressed. Learn something yeah. new every day on the WDW radio show. The hen. That's great. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a really cool detail. Um, so again, that, that's really just scratching the surface of some of the symbolism. But Jeff, let's go ahead and let's go into the temple. Let's go into where the actual attraction is. And currently, there is a Circle Vision 360 film. There always has been since the pavilion opened, but it has changed uh, somewhat significantly since it first came in, although the story of how this, this film was made, I think, is very, very interesting. Yeah, this, I got to say, is truly one of my favorite attractions in Walt Disney World, uh, based even on its earliest of incarnations, which was the the film Wonders of China, Land of Beauty, Land of Time, which opened when Epcot opened. And then, as you said, it um, you know, I believe 2003, it was updated and the name changed to Reflections of China. Um, when it was updated, they still retained much of the footage that was originally shot. I know we're going to talk a little bit about that, but I, I think this is really remarkable. And I think it's if you, you know, we talk about hidden treasures, I think because it's it doesn't have kind of the high profile that it once had when in, in the early days of Epcot I think it is truly one of the hidden treasures of Walt Disney World right now because it's such a great great experience absolutely and when you learn some more about what it took to get this film made I think it hopefully will bring a greater appreciation of it for you because you have to think back to the 80s and the fact that Disney wanted to film inside China was unprecedented uh, and they obviously had to get uh, permission from the People's Republic of China to film in that country. And, you know, at the time, the People's Republic was very, very wary of Disney's interest. You know, what did they want to film? Where did they want to go? Um, Who was going to supervise the film? How was that all going to take place so that certain 
strategic and important Chinese installations might not be revealed um, that they didn't want to. So they also wanted, they were very concerned about how was the country going to be portrayed um, and how was Disney going to represent that. So they did get this, this unprecedented access under the condition that it had to be under very, very strict supervision from the Chinese government and that the Chinese government would dictate where and when Disney could could film. So, for example, um, aerial shots of the Great Wall and certain areas of Tibet were completely out of bounds and they would not let Disney do it. But what they were able to do was to come to some sort of agreement. And believe it or not, when Disney came over during these talks and negotiations, they brought over a copy of Fantasia that they sit and watch. And supposedly that was very much uh, almost an icebreaker for people and, and kind of um, opened the doors a little bit more for Disney to be able to do what they wanted to do. So the Ministry of Culture set up a, a deal so that they could work together and have Chinese labor and production crews working together with the Disney crew. But what they did was really interesting, Jeff, because they wouldn't just say, okay, Disney, you know, you can go and film right here. Disney would basically say, this is what we want to do. The Chinese film crew would go up in helicopters. They would photograph scenes in these areas which they felt were somewhat sensitive. They'd come back down, let the Americans look at the videotapes and the pictures and either approve it, you know, as to where it was or send them back up again and say, no, we need a little bit something else. And as they began to work together and become more comfortable together, um, some of these restrictions and some of these uh, conditions became more relaxed. And they really scouted for probably about two months before they started shooting in the summer of 1981. Now, remember, Epcot's opening 82, so we're, we're kind of cutting it close for one that's actually um, taking place. And they had to go back a few other times, too, to do pickup shots for different seasons and winters and things like that. And when they brought that initial film back to WED in September 81, they, they showed it to Imagineers and executives on a stage in, in Burbank. And supposedly what they saw and saw how this great expansive country, visions of images that they've never seen before opened up in front of them, they just, it was dead silent. And they were absolutely blown away by uh, what they were seeing and the footage that they were able to pick up. Yeah, th- this is a, it's a remarkable presentation for all the reasons you decided. And it was also an, a significant step forward in the development of this type of film. Um, this 360 uh, surrounding uh, format had been around for a while. It had been in Disneyland and it had been a staple of Tomorrowland since uh, Disney World opened in uh, 71. Um, there was a number of 360 movie presentations, uh, America the Beautiful. And what they did in this case was they, they had had plans for this one and, and also for the film in Canada. But they took it one step further and where those past films were very much kind of showcasing the novelty of the format and the 360 surrounding uh, visions that you saw. This did the same thing, but it took it and gave it a narrative and it gave it almost a very dramatic feel. And they did that by putting a character in the film. And as, as people that have seen the, both versions of the film, there is a narrator for the film, and that narrator is the character of Li Bai. And Li Bai is an actual historical figure in China, and in fact a well-known uh, historical figure, almost kind of a name as common to us as Abraham Lincoln. Um, he is that well-known there. He's an 8th century poet um, from the Tang Dynasty, and he basically pr- 
provides a sort of this narrative cohesion to the to the film. He is your sort of traveling companion as you go through the landscape of China. Yeah, and and it really having him narrate it not only teaches us something about the Chinese culture and history, but he acts as such a wonderful, like you said, almost like a tour guide of these regions that we would never have been able to see before. And the use of the circle vision, I think, here is done so well. And you talked about the advances of the technology. And this actually was one of the the, the first uses of the success uh, the successor, really, of the original Circarama technology. That was used back in Disneyland when there used to be 11 uh, cameras. But there were a lot of problems with it and the way that it was being filmed. The fact that there always had to be a set focal length of all the images didn't always let the camera sync up right. It caused some problems with blurriness and guests feeling disoriented. They now improved this camera to the Circle Vision film that has nine cameras. And what they did is now, instead of actually facing the cameras out, they face up to a mirror so that focal length problem is now taken care of. But the interesting thing about the camera itself was these cameras were huge. I mean, 300 plus pounds each. And if they hung them from a helicopter, okay, not a big deal. They pick it up, they get the aerial shots. Well, there were other places while they were filming where access was a little bit more of a problem. And in order to get certain vantage points, they couldn't reach them by helicopter. So, for example, uh, there's a the Huangshang Mountain where they actually had to carry, the Disney Imagineers had to carry this 300-pound camera up 16,700 stone steps just to get up one of these sacred mountains and get the shots that they want. So it shows you the use of technology and the importance of technology and the dedication of Disney to get these where they wanted to see. And sometimes they had to do these twice. Sometimes they had to do the, the filming first with a regular camera to get the approval of the Chinese government and then go back and do it again with the Circle Vision camera. So... Um, and again, this, this technology continued to improve not only with the original film, but when uh, it was the film was updated again to Reflections of China in 2003. And again, it's 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 really interesting because with it was an amazing marriage of all these elements. Because, as I said, for the first time, it really you were you were even though you were standing up. You know, one of the drawbacks of having to go to the Circle uh, Vision films is you know having to stand on the lean rails or to be with the lean rails but it was a narrative flow and they used techniques that they didn't necessarily use quite as much in the past where you know you have the nine screens and instead of always having a consistent panorama around you in this case they started using techniques where you would focal down, focus down to one screen and the character of Lee Bai would appear on that one screen and there's one particular instance where he's saying that the history of China is told in in so much in water and kind of transitions to um, talking about the Yangtze River. And when he did that, then the, the, the other eight screens kind of one by one come on behind you and then form the panorama. And these are subtle elements, but they're very, very dramatic and very dynamic for what they were doing. And like I said, they hadn't really made that step up to this to this point in the past. So in that regard, it's just a, an incredibly well-crafted film. And Again, coming back to the character of Li Bai, he is this, you know, the central point. You're, you're traveling through China with him, and he is climbing the mountains. He is going across the, the Great Plains near the beginning. In fact, he says, I'm going to stop here for a while and have a cup of tea. You go on. And there, there's something that really creates, even though it's only within 19 minutes, it's creating this very, very strong bond between you 
and him um, as, a, as a purpose of the entertainment. And it's great because I think they did it very intentionally because you're dealing with a cultural gap here. You're, you're, you're talking about um, a country that has been closed off from the rest of the world for so long and experiencing so much of the, you know, the restrictions that had been imposed in the late you know, 20th century, as you said. It really was an extending hand to us, I guess, in the West when, when the way this was done. And so it was very, very interesting. And one of the things that's really interesting about it is, is that the character of Levi was played by an American actor uh, whose name was Key Luke. And Key Luke um, did, did such a remarkable job in this role. He was a classic Hollywood actor. He'd been around since the 1930s. He was very famous in his younger days for portraying the number one son in the series of Charlie Chan movies. And a lot of um, folks of our generation will recognize him as the shopkeeper in the Gremlins movies. And so he he was really a very, very dynamic presence. And I, I, I think he was just a dead on casting choice for the role. Yeah. And I think that the film excels in so many areas. And again, one of these things that you, you might decide not to, you know, you might overlook, say, oh, I don't want to sit down and watch another movie. But it's artistically beautiful and it's expansive and it's compelling, especially because, like you said, the, the country has for so many generations really been closed off to the outside world. Uh, it really gives you um, a, a great hand-holding way to take you through and, and introduce you to the just immensity and complexity of the land and the people and having a character played by somebody that we might recognize, like you said, from other films, it almost enhances the experience for us as Americans because it kind of gives you that little bit of comfort that you've seen this person before, you know him, you've been introduced to him before, um, and he's not as so, pardon the pun, foreign to you um, as he takes you on this journey, which, again, is absolutely spectacular. And what's, what's really great, and, and sadly did not, when they transitioned to the Reflections of China movie in 2003 it didn't survive the film but in that initial film wonders of china um one of the things that really solidified that bond that you had with this character was the ending of the film and when you reach the ending of the film what and this comes back to what we were talking about how the film ties so dramatically into the architecture of the pavilion a very big component of the film was the temple of heaven you're introduced to it early on in the film um and you know say you know basically giving you the background on the temple of heaven but then you come full circle, and, and, and Levi, the character of Levi, says that, you know, towards the end, as you're coming up to the conclusion of the film, you return to the Temple of Heaven, and, he, and it's basically, you've come full circle, we're back, we've returned to the Temple of Heaven, and that's very true, because that's where you are, you're, you're, you're in the, within the replica of the Temple of Heaven, and the film ends by Levi reciting one of his poems, and the poem is uh, called Farewell to a Friend, and the poem is very short, it goes, this is the place where we must sever you go thousands of miles, my friend, once forever. Like the floating clouds, we drift apart. The sunset lingers like the feelings of my heart. And that is basically how the film ends. And again, there was just, in, in a short 19 minutes, they've created this very, very strong emotional bond with this character, and then hence, by extension, the car- uh, the country. And it was just incredibly effective. I it, in, in, it was, like I said, it had become one of my favorite attractions. Just so much for that emotional connection that you felt for something that you'd never had any experience with before. And I think that's where Disney succeeds in these these ways. Um, to take a theme park attraction and deliver such a powerful punch in such a short amount of time, you know, in that you're visiting it there. 
And what was sad about it was, is I think one of the reasons this did not survive into the, the reflections of China Incarnation was when they updated the film, um, they wanted to include updates of Hong Kong, Singapore, um, a lot had happened in 20 years, um, and they wanted to get all that footage in. Well, sadly, Key Luke, the actor, passed away in the 1990s. I believe it was 1991. So it wasn't, you know, it was only within like less than 10 years of him making the film in the first place. So he couldn't come back and reshoot any footage or do any voiceover dialogue. But they did want to keep the character in the new film. So they had a new actor come in and film new scenes and unfortunately what had to happen is because of his new dialogue he had to overdub prior dialogue for scenes that they were still retaining with the um with key luke's performances yeah and even beyond the reflections of china attraction there's a lot more to see in and around the pavilion other than just some of the architectural elements that were there there's an art gallery there called the land of many faces that looks at uh four very distinct uh, cultures in China, talking about some of their stories, their clothing, um, as well as their, their different environments. That's something you should take some time to go see. Um, there's also Chinese musicians outside called Sishan, uh, which um, sort of perform classical music, Chinese classical music on classical instruments. But I think the absolute must-go-see are the Dragon Legend Acrobats. Get your Times Guide in the morning and make sure you stop and go see. They are outside in the uh, promenade area of the pavilion. These young entertainers from China are... they The, the performances that they give are literally jaw-dropping, a la somewhat Cirque du Soleil-ish uh, in what they do. But these kids, and again, some of these young kids are very, very young, are just absolutely spectacular. Um, and you can see the, the dedication and the training that must go into what they do. But, um, Jeff, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to see them out there, but they're just amazing. Yeah, we've, we've watched them multiple times. They, to me, are one of the best, if not the live best, kind of live performance type things they do in World Showcase. Um, they are phenomenal, as you said. Yeah, and like I said, they come right from um, China. They're from the, the, the Puyang Academy of Acrobatics. And uh, just really something spectacular for, for adults and kids. Uh, there's also shopping and dining. There's the Yangfeng Shang. Shangdian shop, lots of things from kimonos to furniture to tea sets to um, everything for, again, kids and adults, wind chimes, fans, umbrellas, um, someplace to get a, a very unique uh, souvenir, like in this in this huge bazaar. And dining-wise, there's two restaurants. There's the Lotus Blossom Cafe. That's a counter-service restaurant that has very simple dishes like stir-fried beef and vegetables, egg rolls, fried rice, whatnot. Some very unique drinks, a couple of unique teas, uh, iced and hot that you can get. And there's also the sit-down restaurant, which is Nine Dragons. That is a 250-seat uh, restaurant. It's located next um, to the shopping bazaar. Very, very wide variety of dishes here from Cantonese-style lobster to treasure duck, Chinese spare ribs. Um, there's Cantonese uh, dishes. There's Kangchi uh, style entrees. This restaurant's actually closing uh, this year. That's going to be completely gutted, completely redone, a la what they did over in Japan, to be a new open dining room with five cooking stations, um, open kitchen, whatnot. That's supposed to open up in late 2008. It's something that I'm looking forward to. I always thought Nine Dragons was okay. I didn't think it was probably the best of the World Showcase sit-down restaurants, but supposedly what they are going to be doing with this refurb is going to be extensive, 
and uh, based on the success of what they did over like in Japan, I'm looking forward to seeing what Nine Dragons is going to bring. Yeah, it'll be interesting because of um, in in a similar vein, you know, we've had Yak and Yeti open in Animal Kingdom, and and much of us out here that have experienced that are just very very enthusiastic about it. So I would like to see what a counterpart of of that type of cuisine over in Epcot will bring. Yeah, and again, it just goes to show that you know some of these pavilions. You really should take the time and walk in and see. Whether they have an attraction, whether they have a show like Reflections of China, you can spend literally hours meandering through and just, you know, browsing the shops or trying something. I like to, you know, the first time I go or the first time I bring people, I like to maybe give them a sample of some of the different cuisine from all the different countries. Um, And China is no exception because what you find here might be different than what you find in your local Chinese restaurant. Um... The outside architectural elements, the outside entertainment is some of the best in all of World Showcase. And I just think because of how unique and how exotic the China Pavilion and the Chinese culture and the Chinese people are, um, it really, like you said, Jeff, is a true hidden treasure of World Showcase. Oh, and you know what, Jeff? There was one other thing that I forgot to mention, too, and it's something I really like uh, because I'm a big tea drinker, and that is there's a new... Joy of Tea outdoor cart across the promenade by the lagoon that has a variety of hot and cold uh, teas. There's obviously green teas. There's alcoholic beverages as well mixed in with tea, uh, plum wine. There's there's green tea slushes. That's something really uh, that I like to stop and make sure that I get every time that I go to Epcot um, as I'm walking around the promenade. And uh, if you're a tea drinker, they have some really unique things there as well. Always thinking with your stomach. Research. It's all in the. It's all. I'm doing it for the people. I do it for the listeners. <laughs> so, all right, Jeff. Thank you again for taking this visit to uh, China with me. I really appreciate you coming along and uh, taking a look at, like I said, one of World Showcase's true hidden treasures. Yes. Let me repeat uh, the greeting that I gave you at the beginning, which was, "May good fortune follow you on your path through life, and may virtue be your neighbor." Uh, those did mean something. They wasn't just me rambling on like an idiot, as I sometimes often do on the program. Uh, those were um, the sayings that appear in Chinese on a pair of banners at the entrance to the pavilion. And that's just one little bit of parting trivia. So thanks again, Lou, for having me. I really appreciate being on the show. going to answer some more of your questions in this week's listener email section. The first comes from Catherine Smith, who writes, I was just wondering if you know of anywhere on property where we can get adequate child care for extended periods of time. The reason I'm asking is because my husband and I would love to take our young daughter, who was born in April 2008, on her first trip to Disney, most likely in early 2009. Since this would also be my husband's first quote-unquote real trip to the world, we took the Disney cruise on our honeymoon, We would like to ride some of the headliners and take in some meals on our own. I believe I read somewhere that the Grand Floridian or several other Disney resorts have childcare on site. Do you know if this is true? If so, how long can you leave your child in there at any one time? Is there an additional cost? And do you know of any other alternatives for parents of very young children looking for some quiet time? Thanks, Catherine. Catherine, yes, a lot of the deluxe resorts actually do have 
in resort child care. So, for example, over at Animal Kingdom Lodge, they have something called Bush Camp, where you can put your kids in between 1 and 4 p.m. Those are for kids who are about uh, ages 6 to 4. Now, if you have younger kids, there's also Simba's Clubhouse. That's for ages 4 to 12. That's $11 for hour, uh, per hour, and that's for between the hours of 4.30 and midnight. Over at the Grand Floridian, there is the Mouseketeer Club. The Polynesian has the Ye- Neverland Club. The Yacht and Beach Club has the Sandcastle Club. But again, these age ranges are only from 4 to 12. Now, if you have very young children, as in your case, as in, in, in many other people's cases, you can do a few other options, and that's where you can get some in-room babysitting. Now, they are not offered by Disney, but they are accredited. They are licensed, bonded, and insured uh, agencies like the Fairy Godmothers, Kids Night Out. These are ones that Disney ha- uh, actually has referred in the p- to in the past, so you know that there has to definitely be some sort of checking and some reliability behind them that they send over. Uh, they're wonderful with the kids. They had no problems comfort level-wise leaving them in the rooms. Fairy Godmothers is at 407-275-7326. Kids Night Out is 1-800-696-8105. I believe that Kids Night Out is the one that is recommended uh, by Disney. So if you were to go to the front desk and ask, that really is the one that they would uh, give you. Rates are based upon the number of children. So one child is $14 an hour, two is $16.50, three is $19, and four is $21. I believe there's also a $10 transportation fee. And I also believe that there's a four-hour minimum Um, But you need to call Kids Night Out or Fairy Godmothers to find out more. Again, uh, based on the fact that they are recommended by Disney, at least Kids Night Out, and based on experience that I've heard other people have had, uh, I think you should be able to do this uh, really with no problems as far as comfort level is concerned. John Beal wrote in and said that not only does he love the show, but he's even got his mom starting to listen and she loves it. But he's got a couple of questions. And he says that his family is going to Disney between the 23rd and the 26th. He loves the movie Finding Nemo and is ecstatic to see the new musical show. He even bought the soundtrack for it last November and can't wait to hear the real thing. He said, I heard you have to wait in line before the show to get good seats, similar to things like Fantasmic. Do you know about how early to get there? Well, John, let me first say that if you love the movie and if you already enjoy the the soundtrack, you are going to absolutely love Finding Nemo the musical over at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Now, as far as getting in line, yes, you do need to queue up like any show ahead of time. You don't really need to do uh, get in line as early as you would for something like Fantasmic, especially on some of the busier times of the year. Depending on uh, how busy that weekend might be, you may need to line up maybe 45 minutes to an hour before, but what you can do is, is kind of walk by the theater, see how the line may be starting to, be, to form, um, once, even if the line is long, and I've seen it extend as far down in deep into Chester and Hester's Dinorama, don't worry about it because once those doors open, the theater is huge. It fills up very fast, so the line moves very, very quickly. Um, but usually, probably half hour to forty-five minutes before, you should have no problem. Kara wrote in and said, "Lou, I have a quick question for you. I'm going to Disney World this March. While doing research and planning for my trip, I came across some disconcerting information based on crowds saying that the parks will be packed." Will the Disney parks in the first week of March really be that crowded? We're just trying to plan for the best experience, as it will be my boyfriend's first trip since he was five, and about my 18th trip. Thanks for the amazing podcast. Keep up the great work, Kara. Kara, you didn't tell me exactly when you were going. Uh, I know normally the first week in March, 
is usually not that bad. And again, I'm going to refer over to touringplans.com. The only thing you think need to think of is that if you are going that first weekend, it is um, ESPN the weekend. There's also the Pirate and Princess Party, although the crowds shouldn't be too bad outside of the uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios. Uh, Saturday, the six, Saturday, the March 1st is about a 6th, Sunday is an eight, and then the numbers go down to 6s and 5s, so the crowds shouldn't be all that bad that first week or so in March, so I wouldn't be all too concerned, but again, I'd refer you over to touringplans.com for a little bit more information, especially as far as which parks you should go to and which parks you should avoid the days that you're there. Next email is from Nicole Gonzalez, who writes, Mangello, so I have a quick question for you. I've never been in the parks when Space Mountain has been down for a refurb, but with the rumored refurb coming within the next few months, I was wondering what happens to the TTA. With this ride taking you right into the depths of the ride, what will they do for this long of a redo of the attraction? Is there some sort of cover that they'll put over this, or will you just have to stay in the stare at the construction going on? I'm thinking that if they rip, if they rip the roof off, like is being said, this could make for an interesting view of the ride and parks while the while riding this wonderful treasure that is the TTA. Thanks for your hard work and dedication, Nicole. Nicole, again, when we talk about the rumored refurb of Space Mountain, we've heard everything from them chopping the roof off to completely gutting it to doing simple minor things like upgrading the cars, upgrading some of the special effects, the queue interior, etc. I think really until we know what the extent and the length of the refurb is going to be, we won't really be able to determine what happens to the TTA. To a certain degree, if it's not going to be all that extensive, they may be able to just cover up the, um, the the glass inside Space Mountain so you don't actually get to see anything. It'll just be completely blacked out. Or the refurb might be so extensive that it's impossible to have the TTA go through Space Mountain anymore. Therefore, uh, they would have to justify closing down the TTA itself. Again, we'll keep our eyes and ears open for this to see what uh, what kind of additional information we can find out as these rumors start to turn into fact as we get closer to this rumored refurb of Space Mountain late this year or in 2009. Next email says, Lou, my family and I are planning on visiting Disney World in mid-June 2008, and I have a couple of questions. First and foremost, we're going to be traveling with two children, a seven-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl. Which resort would you suggest we stay at? Secondly, when do you suggest we book? I ask this knowing that Disney puts out promotions for park tickets and dining plans, etc. When and if should we be looking for these? I understand you probably don't have any inside knowledge to this, but I was wondering if it was tracked throughout the years, and that might give me and my family a little insider track on when to book. Thank you very much, and keep up the great work, and that comes from Chris Lyons from Ohio. Chris, uh, first questions first. You're asking which resort would you suggest we stay at? You know, this one's tough because there's so many factors you have to take into account. How much time you're going to be spending at your resort? Uh, what's your budget like? That obviously is a big determining factor. We've talked about some of our favorite resorts here on the show in the past. I think I really like Pop Century, um, especially if you're not going to sp- be spending a ton of time. And even if you are, there's a great pool. There's a great food court. I think your kids, especially at their ages, would love it. Uh, if money maybe is no object, then you might want to start looking at some of the moderate resorts or even the deluxe resorts. If you're going in June, maybe you're going to be spending some time over at the pool. Think about some place like the Beach Club that has Stormalong Bay, which is like a mini water park in and of itself. Or over at the Boardwalk, which has the Luna Park Pool. Again, very big, very beautiful pool. Uh, that's when you can start taking into account things like location. Do we want to stay someplace maybe that's in walking distance? to Epcot? Do we want to stay on a monorail resort route because 
we're going to be spending most of our time over at the Magic Kingdom. Those are some of the things you have to just kind of take into account. And as far as when to book, I would actually suggest this. I would suggest booking, if you haven't already, book now. And the reason why is, and this is why I highly recommend using a travel agent, is because if you book a reservation, whether it's for June now, whether it's for December, whenever it is, and you go through a travel agent, they should be able to check, and they should be doing it for you anyway, to check and see what kind of discounts may become available as you get closer to your reservation date. So, for example, if a promotion comes out, they'll be able to get you into, whether it's a free dining promotion, whether it's a uh, a less expensive room price option, if there's a ticket upgrade option, they should be able to get that for you even if you already have your reservation in place. So especially if it is a busy time of year, there's a resort very specifically that you want to stay at, try and book it as early as possible. But again, I'd go through a travel agent so you kind of get that free service from them helping you get the best possible discount uh, on wherever and whenever you decide to go. Finally this week, I don't have a question, but a comment from Jack, a listener who said, Luke, congratulations on completing the half marathon. I just finished listening to your recap episode, and as usual, you hit the nail on the head and did a great job portraying the entire overall experience. I ran for the fourth time myself and set a new personal record. I wanted you to know about another new carrot to chase. I'm not sure if an email was sent to everyone about this or not, but I found out that anyone who ran either the half or full marathon at Walt Disney World and then completes the Disneyland Half Marathon in August, will not only receive the Castle Medal, but also a bonus medal for completing races on both coasts in the same year. What a great excuse to head out west for a research trip. Congrats again and keep up the great work, Jack. Jack, thanks very much for sending that over. I never even thought about that. I forgot that Disneyland also has their marathons out there as well. And if you enjoy the experience over at Walt Disney World, now uh, with the extra bonus of getting that additional medal, you're right, it might sound like a good reason to justify going out to Disneyland in August and trying the experience out there. So if you decide to do it, Jack, good luck. Let us know, and I'd love to see that uh, that bonus medal when you get it. So that's going to do it for this week's email section. If you have any emails, questions, comments that you want to share, send it to lou at wdwradio.com. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. I want to thank Jeff Pepper for doing his DSI with me, as well as all of you for sending in your questions for the voicemail and email section. Remember, you can also continue to email me and be on the air anytime by sending your emails to lou at wdwradio.com or calling the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. I also want to continue to invite you to come over and discuss the show and anything Disney over at the forums at disneyworldtrivia.com. Visit our show notes page at wdwradio.com for links and some more information, as well as to some of our partners, including Owner's Locker, where you can go and sign up for their free trial offer and have your own personal secure storage locker delivered to and from your resort. And for the best prices on official and authorized discount Disney tickets, you can go and visit orlandofuntickets.com. Visit attractionsmagazine.com. Check out Ricky Briganti's latest edition of the Orlando Attractions Magazine. Issue 2 is out, and I'm looking forward to seeing what Ricky has in store for us this month. Coming up on future shows, I have more Hidden Treasures, Best of the Best, DSI, Disney Scene Investigations, The Last of Our Seven Wonders of Walt Disney World, and so much more. I also have a couple of really great interviews lined up that I think you are really going to enjoy, so be sure and stay tuned for that. 
I'm also still looking for old photos from Walt Disney World from the 70s through the 90s as I get ready to launch the all-new expanded and updated DisneyWorldTrivia.com. That should be happening in the next couple of weeks, but if you have any old photos of shows, attractions, buildings, just about anything, you can go ahead and email those to Lou at WDWRadio.com. And finally, if you like the show, please continue to review us in iTunes, and more importantly, please help spread the word and let others know about it. Thanks again for listening this week. I appreciate you tuning in. Have a great week. I'll see ya. Hey, Lou, this is Doug from New Jersey again. How you doing? You're doing a wonderful show, and the LaSeller Steakhouse really hit home with my stomach. That's my favorite restaurant on property. We've eaten at mostly almost all of them, and uh, it is by far my favorite. And uh, what you need to try is, if you're ever down there, because I know you go all the time, is uh, they have a soft-shell crab sandwich that they offer seasonably different seasons and it is incredible and you're right it it has gotten overcrowded it used to be up until two years ago where we could get in anytime we wanted to we used to eat there a couple times every trip we've taken we've been there like 25 times since 97 and we've eaten there every single time but the last couple years has been crazy we didn't know what happened what made it go where everybody's going there now but we knew why the food was great but all of a sudden it was like the cat was out of the bag but thank you for a great show. I'm mad at you for making me hungry, but you have a wonderful day. Thanks, Lou. Bye-bye. Hi, Lou. This is Jay Myers from Jackson, Mississippi. I'm calling from the Animal Kingdom. We came out to uh, the conservation station at Rafiki's Planet Watch after your interview with Dr. Savage and just wanted to report in that we met uh, one of her assistants named Joseph. Asked him about the uh, tracking station pins that you had talked to Dr. Savage about, and we're told that... Uh, Officially, those pins do not exist, but she did get us one anyway. So my daughter was able to get one of those. We were really excited about that. And coincidentally, we actually came out this morning for the purpose of they were doing an annual exam on a lion. So they had a lion in the vet center this morning, which was really cool to get to see. Thanks for all you do, Lou. See ya. Hi, this is Ed Plinzak from Amherst, Ohio. I'm actually just driving home from Disney World now. I'm listening to your podcast from last week. Um... You were talking about restaurants. Uh, some of the overlooked ones that are not very busy, especially if it's uh, off times of the day, are ESPN Club on the boardwalk. Uh, you can leave Epcot and go there in the afternoon, and there's usually many tables open. Or for many of the parks, taking a bus over to Olivia's at uh, Old Key West. That's a very good restaurant, especially for dinner around 5 o'clock. There's usually uh, uh, many tables open there at that time, too. Once the park closes about 8 or 9, it gets busy, but uh, around 4.35 o'clock when they open for dinner, uh, that would be my two suggestions for some nice restaurants that are almost never um, busy during those times. Thank you. Enjoy your show. Bye. Hi, Lou. This is Craig from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, we actually met at Mouse Fest 2006, actually, while you were eating breakfast. Deanna gave me uh, her pot person pin at the time. But uh, I, I wanted to call and congratulate you and everyone that has raced um, at, down, at, down at Walt Disney World in the 5K, half marathon, full marathon. I, was, I, I understand the discipline and the hard work that it takes 10 years ago and 60 pounds ago. I was once a cross-country runner, so I've run my share of 5Ks, but we also had a a run-a-thon in high school to raise money for the cross-country team where we would go out and we'd run 20 miles and we'd take breaks every five miles and 
refresh ourselves. But there was one time that I actually I told myself I I got to try and run a run a marathon, and unfortunately due to time constraints, I was only able to make it another three miles. So I ran 23 miles uh, once in my life, and uh, well, I hope to get back in that shape ultimately in the future here. But uh, I'm a, nearly a full-time student, have a have a four-month-old son, and work full-time. So I'm trying to get that mental discipline instilled back in myself to get running again. So you inspired me, um, as well as everyone who's down there. And I know that it would be great to run down there in any of the races. So I hope to do that here in the in the future. And thank you again, and congratulations again. Goodbye. Hi, Lou. It's Captain from Massachusetts. We just got back from our trip to Disney World last night, and um, we had a wonderful time. The weather was quite chilly, but um, we still enjoyed ourselves. And I just wanted to let you know that we, on our flight home from Southwest, um, we found out that our flight attendants were also um, characters in the Finding Nemo show, which we had seen. And one of them is Marlin, and the other one was Dory. They were very entertaining on the flight, and I'm sure they're extremely entertaining also um, as part of the musical. So um, we did get to ride Spaceship Earth twice. The touch screens were working in the morning, but unfortunately not in the evening. But it, we did enjoy the ride a lot. And uh, can't wait till the next show. Uh, bye-bye.